According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me, if you would, in the book of Jeremiah. Once again, Jeremiah, this morning we arrive at Jeremiah chapter 43. We have been chapter by chapter through the book of Jeremiah for uh, about 43 weeks now. And uh, give or take, we've had a couple of weeks off with guest speakers and whatnot, but covering this on a survey basis, one chapter per Sunday, similar to what we did with Isaiah, going through Isaiah, 66 chapters in 66 weeks. Here we're going through Jeremiah in 52 weeks, and we're nearly done. This is week 43. Furiously working to wrap up these final chapters before... uh, my Ukrainian trip, because I would hate to leave you with one chapter remaining and uh, have to disappear and then come back three weeks later and, and uh, wrap it up. So we want to wrap up Jeremiah before the Ukrainian trip, and then we will come back and uh, then start on Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is our new study coming up at the 11 o'clock hour. All right. We left you hanging a week ago at the end of chapter 42. And uh, so I want to get right back to it. Before we do, though, remember God is spirit. He must be worshiped in spirit and in truth. Let's take a moment of silent prayer and humble ourselves under the authority of the Word of God that God will speak to us here today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you this morning in spirit and in truth. And Father, the, uh, the boasting and the bragging that uh, we read about a week ago in chapter 42. We, uh, we want to repeat their words, but with a reality of the heart intention to obey. Father, we want you to speak to us, and all that you say to us, we will do. All that you say to us, we will obey. If it's pleasant or not pleasant, whatever it may be, it's coming from you, and we humble ourselves under your authority and under your truth. So, Father, open the eyes of our understanding. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. So, like I say, the, um, the message ended very abruptly at the end of chapter 42 and verse 23, uh, 22 there, and then we don't have the reaction until today. As soon as Jeremiah, whom the Lord their God had sent, had finished telling all the people all the words of the Lord their God, that is, all these words, everything you read in chapter 42, then Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, and Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you are telling a lie. <laughs> all right? So imagine this, okay? And I've yet to encounter this. Perhaps the day will come that I will finish a Sunday morning message, and then the whole congregation will stand up and shout, liar. All right? Hadn't happened yet, but uh, there it is. You are telling a lie. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you are not to enter Egypt to reside there. And, you know, they're disputing what the Lord has told Jeremiah. And how do they know this? Uh, They don't. Uh, They just want to hear what they want to hear. And they reject anything that does not agree with what it is they want to hear. And since he's telling them what they don't want to hear, they have to accuse him of lying. And that's... uh, all too sad and yet not surprising given who they serve. 
The adversary is the liar and the father of lies, and it's remarkable how they will oftentimes accuse others of the very thing that they themselves are uh, very frequently uh, guilty of, uh, of doing. And so what we're going to see here in these first seven verses, we're going to break the chapter down into two halves, basically, verses 1 through 7 and then verses uh, 8 and following, and uh, 8 through 13. So it's a fairly short chapter. Good thing, Communion Sundays are always short anyway, but we'll have a short chapter to deal with here and then uh, be able to go to the Lord's table at the end of this hour. Uh, Verses 1 through 7, Jeremiah is accused of lying. He's kidnapped and brought down into Egypt. And that, to me, is extraordinary. Why bother? If he's a false prophet, if he's a liar, if, uh, if you can't trust anything he says, why do you want him with you? All right? You know, uh, just do what you want to do anyway. Leave him alone and, and go off and do your thing. But no, they're insistent on taking him as well. They capture him. They capture Baruch. They capture every witness here inside. In fact, these guys are doing the very same thing that the assassin was doing a couple weeks ago. Remember? don't want to leave any witnesses. You want to take them all with you. And if you have them with you, then they can't be telling stories uh, behind you or uh, any kind of investigation that might happen when, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar shows up. All right? Because he is going to show up. His appointed governor has been assassinated. Gedaliah is dead. And, uh, and so the Babylonians are going to return and they're going to look into this and they're going to be reprisals uh, for uh, the murder of the governor. And that's what they're afraid of here. So uh, here's the accusation. You're telling a lie. The Lord our God has not sent you to say you are not to enter Egypt to reside there. But Baruch, the son of Neriah, is inciting you against us to give us over into the hand of the Chaldeans so they will put us to death or exile us to Babylon. And so here's something else they level an accusation here, that it's personal. There's something between Baruch and Azariah. There's something between the the people involved here that the text doesn't tell us what it is, but obviously there's a personal grudge or some kind of background that uh, gives them this hostility against Baruch, right? We don't know what it is, and um, we could could spend all day speculating on it, and, and there's no edification there. But whatever the case is, they are pointing their fingers at Baruch uh, poisoning the attitude of, uh, of Jeremiah. That, uh, well, he just doesn't like us. And now he's influencing you against us. And this whole thing almost seems like a, a, you know, a, a junior high catfight or something that, well, you can't be my friend if he's going to be your friend. I mean, just something silly like that. That Baruch has spoiled you uh, against us. So verse 4, Yohanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces and all the people did not obey the voice of the Lord to stay in the land of Judah. And that's what they were told to do. Remember last week, there was the if you stay, here's the consequences. If you go, here's the consequences. And then when you go, (laughs) here's more consequences because the Lord knew that it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. Their their, Their minds were made up. They had already made the decision before they went to the Lord and inquired of the Lord. All right? And and let me tell you, there is a whole Sunday, you know, month worth of sermons there in that in that concept alone. Because how many times do we uh, make up our minds about what we're gonna do, and then it kind of crosses our minds, you know, we haven't really prayed about it. Uh, okay, I guess, yeah. Let's go ahead and pray about it. But let's pray you know, that, that God will back up what we want to do in the first place. <laughs> All right. And so we pray after the fact. We pray with, uh, with, without genuine prayers. 
We honestly, we, we have these throwaway expressions like, Lord, if it could be your will. And we say that, but do we mean that? Are we really honestly willing to say, not our will, but thine be done? And saying, Lord, if this is not your will, then close that door. If this is not your will, then overrule. I love the overruling will of God. And, and if, if, again, he knows how to do it. He knows how to send a storm. He knows how to send a whale. He can swallow, you know, whoever needs to swallow and spin them up on a beach. Uh, talking about Jonah, of course. The overruling will of God is amazing. And we should thank him for that. Saying, Father, if I'm, if I'm going somewhere I shouldn't be going, then put me back on, on the right track where I should be going. And, and leave it with him. But if your mind is made up and, and when, when you hear something that's contradictory to that and you reject it, and you say, oh, no, no, that's, that's a lie. That's not God's word. That's not his will. Then uh, you have that willful defiance that the scripture describes and, and that the scripture condemns in the, the judgment that then comes to us for, uh, for that kind of willful rebellion. All right, now to the rest of this then. Um, and like I say, they, they had promised that they were going to listen to anything. They promised uh, if you back up to chapter 42, you'll see that there. And, and um, in verse 5, they said to Jeremiah, this is 42, 5, they said to Jeremiah, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with the whole message with which the Lord your God will send you to us. Whether it is pleasant or unpleasant, we will listen to the voice of the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it may go well with us when we listen to the voice of the Lord our God. Okay? Great prayer, but they're lying. They don't mean a word of it. And that's clear when we get into our chapter today. They, and they didn't mean it when they said it. See? So that's why I encouraged at the opening of every prayer, every, every Bible class, we are humbling ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. And if the Scripture starts to convict us, we've got to be thankful for that conviction because we asked Him at the beginning of this hour to bless us with His Word to speak to us, to, to rebuke us. That's the thing. The Word of God is profitable. And uh, those things that may not be popular are still profitable. And they, they correct us and they transform us and they, they work in us. And we can't be like these guys. We can't just get all mad and reject it and say, oh, well, that's not for me. Oh, well, that's not right. Or, oh, I don't know what Pastor Bob was thinking. He's obviously out of fellowship today, <laughs> right? You know, well, it's starting to be a trend now. Either I've been carnal for the last 12 weeks or maybe the Lord's working on you here in something, okay? And uh, take it as, the, as, as you will. And so this is what um, we're looking at here. Now, back to chapter 43 then. So uh, they're not going to listen. They're not going to stay. And they're going to grab everybody and they're going to go. So verses 5 through 7 now, Yohanan, the son of Korea, and all the commanders of the forces took the entire remnant of Judah who had returned from all the nations to which they had been driven away in order to reside in the land of Judah. This is a significant gathering. He's not just getting a handful of, of hostages that he'd rescued from the assassin. He's actually leading an entire political movement. These are people groups that we had seen as refugees a couple chapters ago. And, uh, and now they're being led away. This is a national migration that's being led here by Jonathan. Right? Or by Yohanan, the brother of Jonathan. All right. And so uh, in order to reside in the land of Judah, uh, verse 6, the men, the women, the children, the king's daughters, the, and every person that Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, had left with Gedaliah, the son of Ahacham, uh, and grandson of Shaphan. 
together with Jeremiah the prophet and Baruch the son of Neriah. Which again, I mentioned earlier, that just cracks me up. You don't like him. Why take him with you? You, don't, uh, you, you say he's a liar. Why take him with you? Well, because you know he's not a liar. You know he's a real prophet of God. And um, despite the fact you don't want to listen to what he has to say, you, you want him with you instead of against you. And so, uh, so they take him. And they entered the land of Egypt, for they did not obey the voice of the Lord. And they went in as far as Tapanese. And boy, the geography on this is fun. The history on this is fun. The archaeology on this is fun. And uh, if we weren't going chapter by chapter so rapidly through this book, I'd probably want to stop and spend some time here and uh, do some work on that, on that location. In any event, for years, Egypt provided a refuge for fleeing Jews. This has kind of been the pattern since the death of Josiah. This has been the pattern. There's been a lot of back and forth between the Babylonians and the Egyptians. Been a lot of tug of war. In fact, there have even been puppet kings that have been dethroned. Uh, the son of Josiah, that, who first became king, he was removed and sent down to Egypt. And then another king, Je- Jehoiakim, then becomes king. And then Jehoiachin, and then Zedekiah. And we've, we've kind of tracked through the final five kings of Judah here in the process of teaching the book of Jeremiah. And so for years, Egypt has provided a refuge for fleeing Jews. When, uh, when you decide to, to get out of, get out of the, 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 the war zone, Egypt was a place to flee to. And although they were told not to, they were warned not to. The kings were actually warned against forming the, the military alliances, the political alliances, and said, no, don't do that. And so um, you might recall back in Jeremiah 22, I don't want to spend a ton, a ton of time on this, but I think it's useful. Jeremiah 22 and, and, and when, a, when a trend, or when a pattern becomes a trend, <laughs> right, when you start to notice more and more people are following in the same footsteps of, uh, of a departure, uh, you start to realize, well, wait a minute, this temptation is, uh, is, is far too strong or far too easy related to things. But Jeremiah 22, verses 11 and 12, thus says the Lord in regard to Shalom, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, who became king in the place of Josiah's father who went forth from this place. This was Eliakim when he became the first king after Josiah. Uh, He went forth from this place. And where did he go? Well, we're told he went to Egypt. He will never return there. But in the place where they led him captive, there he will die and not see this land again. And so that brother, that son of Josiah, that brother of King uh, Jehoiakim, uh, and Zedekiah, by the way, that brother is never going to return to the land of of Israel. He's never going to return to Judah. And this becomes the consistent pattern. Those that went to Babylon, they're going to have a captivity for 70 years, but then they, or their children, their grandchildren, their descendants, they will return. There are promised returns from Babylon, promised returns from the captivity. But there are no promised returns from Egypt. And other than the, 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 the random straggler that God rescues on an individual basis, there is no large-scale return from Egypt following this chapter we're looking at here today. In chapter 24 and verse 8, we've got another example. Jeremiah 24, 8. And um, reference there to Egypt as being a place of, uh, of escape and where they fled. 
like the bad figs, which cannot be eaten due to the rottenness. Indeed, thus says the Lord, so I will abandon Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials, and the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and the ones who dwell in the land of Egypt. See, God hasn't overlooked them either. He's, he's well aware of what they've done to escape. He's well aware that, uh, that they will not escape. They think they have, but they will not. I will make them a terror and an evil for all the kingdoms of the earth as a reproach and a proverb, a taunt and a curse in all the places where I will scatter them. All right, so Egypt was a refuge way back then in chapter 22 and chapter 24 and throughout these previous chapters. Chapter 26, we have a man that fled down there and then the king sent uh, assassins down there to kill him or bring him back or whatever. Uh, in, in chapter 26, verses 21 through 23. And um, this was at the end of chapter 26. And as I recall, that particular Sunday we were crunched for time and I kind of zipped through this and didn't, didn't teach it in any great detail. But um, there was a man uh, who prophesied in the name of the Lord, Uriah, the son of Shemaiah, not Uriah the Hittite, not the famous Uriah Bathsheba Uriah, but here's a different Uriah, and all the biblical Uriahs tend to end up dead, but here he is. And he was a prophet against Jerusalem, but King Jehoiakim hated him. And so uh, King Jehoiakim and all his mighty men, all the officials heard his words, and the king sought to put him to death. But Uriah heard it, he was afraid, he fled, and he went to Egypt. So there too, there's the pattern. Hey, you got trouble here? Let's run away, and Egypt's a good place to run away to. And King Jehoiakim sent men to Egypt. Elnathan, the son of Akbor, and certain men with him went to Egypt. And they brought Uriah from Egypt, led him to King Jehoiakim, who slew him with a sword, cast his dead body into the burial place of the common people. So they couldn't just hunt him down in Egypt and kill him there. They had, uh, like a bounty hunter, drag him back and let uh, Jehoiakim strike him down himself. And, uh, and there it was. And by the way, this was uh, an episode here where Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, stands by Jeremiah and rescues Jeremiah from a similar fate because Jeremiah did not flee to Egypt. Jeremiah stayed right there, and yet he had an advocate who uh, defended him in verse 24 of, uh, of that chapter, Jeremiah 26, 24. Anyway, so prior to today, prior to this chapter, throughout the book of Jeremiah, in these recent years, we have seen occasional uh, refugees here and there flee to Egypt. This, though, represents a large-scale migration. It represents a large-scale national, not an exodus, an exodus. okay? Uh, not an exit out of Egypt, but an entrance into Egypt. And so uh, you can think of it as the anti-exodus, right? Exo is out, ice is in. And so an exodus as the, uh, it's not just this renegade general. It's not just these, uh, these arrogant men. They're leading the, the, the population of these people, as we read already here in, uh, in these verses, in, uh, particularly in um, verses 5 and 6. You see the large-scale national exodus. And, and is that a solution? Is that an answer? What has God been telling them now through the prophet Jeremiah for decades? Okay? that if they want to live, they need to surrender to Babylon and go to captivity in Babylon. That if they don't, they're going to die. And here they think, okay, third option. <laughs> God's given us an A or a B, but we're going to take C. We'll create our own way of escape. Not how it works. All right? 
that fleeing to Egypt does them no better than had they stayed in Jerusalem. That uh, they're, they're not going to live in Egypt. And that's what we're going to see here. Now, there's more work to be done on this than we have time to do today. This Azariah character. Uh, last week, we were calling him Jezaniah. I believe it's the same guy with two spellings to his name. Jezaniah and Azariah. It's fairly common. The name change, though, I believe has a significance to it. As too, I think, the, um, the mention of his name first and the influence that he has with Yohanan. Uh, the fact that all through chapter 42, Yohanan was the top guy. Yohanan was the leader. Yohanan was the one that every other one of these commanders answered to. And by the end of this chapter, by verse 4 and 5, Yohanan is back again in charge. Yohanan is back again mentioned as first. He's mentioned as the leader. He's mentioned as the, the, uh, the, uh, the sovereign influence over these people. But it's in verses 2 and 3 that Azariah gets listed ahead of Yohanan. Notice that? In verse 2, Azariah, the son of Hoshiah, and Yohanan, the son of Korea. And all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you were telling a lie. So the influence that Azariah has appears to be a manipulative influence on Yohanan. Accusations of incitement. There's a fun word study. <laughs> okay. Do you know what it means to incite somebody? To instigate something? To manipulate something? When we talk about political machinations and we talk about uh, the manipulation of people and how it is that certain speakers develop talents for manipulation. And the remarkable thing about it, how Satan employs those techniques. The vocabulary here is, is a marvelous expression that refers to uh, things that we would expect from our adversary, not from us, not from God's real messengers, not from the, uh, the, the, the truth of the Word of God. See, the best thing about a grace ministry is that uh, there's no place in it for any kind of manipulation. There's no place in it for any kind of legalism. We are blessed to preach truth. And the spirit of truth takes it out there. The spirit of truth implants it within your soul. That's with humility of mind that we receive the word implanted that's able to save our soul. And so the blessings of that, the blessings of grace, the blessings of God, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the one that works and He convicts and He takes the Word of God and He makes it alive and He shapes our thinking. The fact that the Word of God is what transforms us means <laughs> what kind of manipulation can, can we put on it? Why would we even try? All right, why would we even try? Grace does what it does. The Word of God does what it does. And the rest of this is just... Uh, Sad in so many ways. An incitement against Baruch. I think that that accusation, like I said, more often than not, when people start making accusations, it really reflects, you know, like, you're lying, you're lying. It really reflects a person that spends a lot of their own time lying or dealing with liars or uh, something of that nature. And uh, the, mach the machinations of, of Azariah here, I think, are interesting. If I may take one side trip, yes, I may, um, I will show you in 1 Chronicles 21 the same verb, the same verb that we have in um, Jeremiah, we have in Chronicles. So back up, 1 Chronicles 21. And let's, let's be on guard, all right? 
First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. We clearly don't turn to Chronicles enough. And nowadays it's too easy. You don't even have to flip pages. You just tap on your glass screen and the, the app takes you where the app thinks it's smarter than you, that uh, you just tap on the screen and it takes you there. Uh, but First Chronicles 21, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And the verb there is the same verb we got here today in Jeremiah. He incited. He moved so what does that mean? He manipulated. He, what does that mean? And are we vulnerable to this? Can Satan move me to do something? Can I then, uh, can I then you know, do I have a legitimate excuse saying, well, not my fault, the devil made me do it. All right. How does this work? Do you think that these, um, the, the biblical concept of incitement might be a worthwhile doctrinal study to, uh, to pursue? I think so. All right, and so what are our defenses? What is our armor? What is our what is our protection against that kind of incitement? Well, is it not the Word of God? Is it not the conviction of the Word of God? Is it not the leading of the Holy Spirit? What do we spend all this time in Galatians studying for? If if not uh, being led by the Spirit, so as not to fulfill the lust of the flesh? That's exactly what we're provided for. And you and I, by the way, in the church age, have far more available to us than any Old Testament believer ever dreamed of as far as our divine assets to engage here in the angelic conflict. Anyway, so there's, uh, there's a reference there. And uh, so when you see those kind of things, and, and like I say, I, I, would, uh, I would take this as a concept. We're not going to develop it today, but just uh, take it as a concept. Think about it and see if, if in some upcoming studies we, we deal with some aspects that might touch upon that. Uh, but relax, all right? Don't, don't fret. Don't feel as somehow... Uh, God, God has abandoned us to these kind of influences. Not at all. All right. Those that get caught up in false teaching, you know what I'm happy for? Those who get caught up in false teaching are the ones who want to get caught up in false teaching. They accumulate to themselves that you're tickling teachers that they want. If you want truth, God is a, Jesus is a faithful shepherd. And if you want truth, he will shepherd you with truth. And, and the Holy Spirit will, will guide you in that truth. It's a marvelous thing. No one just gets wrapped up in false teaching that, that, that couldn't help themselves. They got the teaching they wanted based upon their own, their own uh, desires. And I think that's clear as well. All right. So first part of the chapter is pretty straightforward. Uh, you're a liar. We're going to Egypt anyway. And they take him with them. All right. So here we go. Back to Egypt. Then, verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Tapanese. I don't know how to pronounce that. In Hebrew, it's Tachpanches. All right. Uh, they came to Jeremiah in Tapanese, saying, Take some large stones in your hands and hide them in the mortar in the brick terrace, which is at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace in Tapanese, in the sight of of some of the Jews, and say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Now this is powerful to me. I love this. All right. Jeremiah has been hated. He's been rejected. He's been kidnapped, but he's still on duty. <laughs> you notice that? He's still on the clock. He's still working because he's a prophet of Yahweh. He, he works for Yahweh. And when the word of Yahweh comes to him, what does he have to do? 
That's right. He's on the clock. He's working. See? And unlike you and me, right? Or, okay, me. Unlike um, so many of us who enjoy finding excuses, well, you know, and in every reason under the sun why we can't fulfill a, a ministry or a work assignment or some kind of thing. Jeremiah uses no such excuses. You know, you think about heroes that stay faithful regardless, okay? And isn't this, this is the story of Joseph, isn't it, from, from uh, Genesis? His brothers threw him down the well, they hated him, they packed him off in slavery, and, you know, and so there he is. And Mrs. Potiphar's thrown herself at him, and who's going to know? See, why wouldn't he just jump in bed with her and whatever? But see, he stayed faithful because he was on the clock too. He's a servant of Yahweh. He's, he's staying faithful. And God used him and God blessed him in that. So much here that, uh, that I can appreciate. Well, in verses 8 through 13, Jeremiah hides some stones in a courtyard. And uh, see, Pharaoh has a palace here. And... Um, which we know about. In fact, archaeology has found it. It's kind of fun. The, um, the details on this are interesting. Um, but he hides some stones in a courtyard, and he prophesies that this location is going to be Nebuchadnezzar's headquarters for his Egyptian conquest. And that's what we see here in verses 8 through 13. So let's look at the rest of this. Remember, Old Testament prophets, they didn't have PowerPoint. They didn't have other visual aids or, or things. So they would do a lot of dramas. They would do a lot of pantomime uh, displays. They would, um, uh, Isaiah had to walk around naked for three years. Uh, Jeremiah had to get tied up with ropes and lay on one side for 40 days and then roll over on the other side. And all of these things were designed symbolically. They were designed to teach doctrine. They were designed to communicate what God himself was revealing. And so the burying of these stones to mark the exact place upon which Nebuchadnezzar would stand. And, uh, and this. So, um, again, verse 9, take some large stones in your hands and hide them in the mortar, in the brick, which is at the entrance of Pharaoh's palace in Toponese in the sight of some of the Jews. And there's some awkward Hebrew there and a lot of debates on what some of that stuff actually means. But nevertheless, um, we can thank uh, uh, the different archaeologists that have dug this up and found it. All right, verse 10. And say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am going to send and get Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. I am going to set his throne right over these stones so that I have hidden, and he will spread his canopy over them. Another puzzle. What's that word canopy all about? It's a unique expression. And there's other unique expressions that are here that uh, I would love to just dig into for some time. We don't have the time. But there it is. I got some ideas. I got some thoughts. But anyway... He will also come and strike the land of Egypt. Those who are meant for death will be given over to death. Now there is, this is a punitive expedition. There is a, an invasion of Babylonian forces. They don't absorb all of Egypt. They don't annex Egypt. Egypt is not brought under the Babylonian dominion the way that it will happen very shortly with Persia, Greece, and Rome. But nevertheless, this is the beginning of the end of independent Egyptian sovereignty. Independent Egyptian sovereignty. 
for the bulk of the remainder of the Old Testament on in the New Testament times, Egypt is no longer uh, in charge of their own destiny. They're no longer in charge of their own people, their own um, affairs, their own national interests. They're going to be under the uh, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome pattern that we have. Uh, let's see here. So yeah, those destined to death for death, those destined to captivity, captivity, those for the sword of the sword. I shall set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt, and he will burn them and take them captive. So he will wrap himself with the land of Egypt as a shepherd wraps himself with his garment. Or possibly the wrapping activity is a picking activity, and maybe he's picking lice off of his shepherd's cloak, as the case may be. And uh, that imagery, too, is kind of curious. Uh, if uh, these people who thought they'd escaped from the Jerusalem massacre, uh, they're just the little lice that have to be picked off the cloak and uh, kind of the last pesky details before he moves on uh, with, uh, with his life. And he will depart from there safely. He will also shatter the obelisks of Heliopolis, which is in the land of Egypt, and the temples of the gods of Egypt he will burn with fire. And so it's curious to me, uh, because I believe by the time this happens, and we've got Babylonian records for this, we've got Greek records, there's, by the time this happens, it's interesting to me uh, to correlate it with the book of Daniel, to correlate it with his salvation. I believe Nebuchadnezzar becomes a, a born-again believer, as an Old Testament believer. And uh, what we see in the book of Daniel with the influence of uh, after the fiery furnace with, uh, with the three uh, Hebrew youth there, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a believer. And the role, as God uses him as a servant here, God uses him for his purpose in destroying this idolatry, in destroying the gods of Egypt in, uh, in this way. All right, some points of study. Jeremiah's faithfulness to the Lord continued despite his temporal circumstances. His faithfulness to the Lord continued despite his temporal circumstances. I was going to throw some extra scriptures on there, but you can do that yourself. Since I forgot. Um, you know, you, you have them, you got them in the Gospels, you've got them where the, the people, you know, Lord, Lord, will follow you, but first, you know, I just planted a field, I got to go... Or, if, or I married a woman, or oh, I got my, my dad died, I got to go bury my dad, or, or whatever. There's always an excuse for why these disciples decide they, they want to follow Jesus, just not, not yet. Okay? They want to follow Jesus, but you know, it's not convenient now. It'll be more convenient tomorrow, which is, you know, the ultimate procrastination idol. Tomorrow is, uh, is, is always the next day. Because tomorrow has another tomorrow, and, and there you go. So think about that. And what does Jesus say? You know, <laughs> let the dead bury the dead. You follow me. Today's the day. And if God's calling you, today's the day. And, and this is such an emphasis. Old Testament, New Testament, in our ministry. Um, thinking about Pastor Dan now at Corpus Christi Bible Church. Obedient to the Lord's calling. And there he goes. All right. And uh, we all have to deal with that. If God's calling us to a, to a field, we got to go, see. And does it get discouraging around here sometimes if, you know, 
Cliff's in Bastrop, and can we get him back sometime? And, and uh, Dan's in Corpus Christi, and, and, and Bob's out in Horseshoe Bay. I think five out of the last six Sundays he's been out there doing pulpit supply. And, uh, and then others, okay? So anyway, keep these things in prayer. Because as God opens these doors and as these, as these uh, ministries are launched, here's the thing, we're not losing anybody. Okay? We're not losing anybody. The kingdom of God is gaining everything, and, and the, the expansion of, his, of the Lord's ministry is what ultimately matters, and I love that. Anyway, here we see Jeremiah and his faithfulness to the Lord. He's going to do all of this. He's going to take these stones. He's going to do all this. All right. Ezekiel also delivers a prophecy of Nebuchadnezzar's Egyptian punitive expedition, and you can find this in Ezekiel 29 and verse 19. You know, back then they didn't have Fox News and all the satellite coverage and remote reports coming from uh, the correspondence in Babylon, but they had prophets. And so here's Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 29, in verse 19, far better than a satellite hookup and cable news. All right, and we know the day. 2917, in the 27th year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald, every shoulder was rubbed bare. But he and his army had no wages from Tyre for their labor that he had performed against it. No decent plunder, because the Phoenicians had sailed away with all the plunder. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He will carry off her wealth and capture her spoil, seize her plunder. It will be wages for his army. For I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor, which he performed, because they acted for me, declares the Lord God. See, he's a tool in God's hand. And this is, uh, again, the blessing. And he's obedient in the the will of God. And now he's going to be rewarded. He's going to be rewarded with this plunder this punitive expedition. And so beginning with this then, with the wealth of Egypt plunder, this is the, the beginning of the end. This is the downhill slide. They will be subsumed. The history of Egypt becomes subsumed under the external dominance of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. If that, if that sequence is interesting to you, you, you know it for what it is. That's the outline of, of Daniel chapter 2. It's the outline of that great statue that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed about. It's the course of not only the Gentile dominion over the Jewish people, but it also represents the, the Gentile or the non-Egyptian dominion over the Egyptian people. And even beyond, even with, uh, into the Muslim era, into the Middle Ages, into modern times. How much of Egypt is truly Egyptian and how much of Egypt is Islamic Arabic? instead of native Egyptian. All right. Anyway, there's a pattern there. And, you know, we could slow down. We could take the time. We could do some more Anthony and Cleopatra stories. (laughs) All right. Because by the time you get to the Ptolemies, you know, you're talking about Greeks that are ruling over Egypt. It's a Hellenistic kingdom. It's not a native Egyptian kingdom. And Cleopatra was the last of the, of the Ptolemy uh, pharaohs, all right? And then the Roman dominion beyond that. And then, like I say, on into post-biblical history in terms of that. We'll spend some time here uh, 
aspect, the last thing I think we'll look at, and then we'll go to the Lord's table. Uh, the archaeologist Petrie, Flinders Petrie. Matthew, I think his full name was Matthew William Flinders Petrie or something like that. Anyway, he actually found this platform of brickwork in 1886. And it's, it's interesting to read about. It's interesting to read the narrative of it, to read his archaeological work. Uh, he's an interesting character, and, and, and maybe if we have time after class, we can pick Glenn's brain a little bit related to the, the Egyptology work that, uh, that Petrie uh, started. I'll just read a couple of things. And then uh, and if you, uh, the actual uh, record that he did of this is available online. You can get the, the text. He wrote it in 1888, and, uh, and uh, it's, it's available online, and you can, uh, it's been archived uh, in the Heathy Trust Digital Library if you want to read about it. But the, uh, the article here on Flinders, there he is. What a majestic beard. Um, And by the way, here's the article on Tapanese I was reading earlier. Good Wikipedia article on that. Uh, called Daphne in Greek on the Pelusian branch of the Nile and uh, where it was located. Now it's near the uh, Suez. It's in the canal zone of the Suez Canal. Um, the biblical history on this, the platform of brickwork, which has been tentatively described as the pavement of the entry of Pharaoh's palace, was discovered here, says William Flinders Petrie. The uh, ceremony described by Jeremiah 43, uh, the brick kiln, pavement of brick, took place. Um, then some of the other historical background, King, I don't know how to pronounce, Psameticus, Psameticus. He established a garrison of foreign uh, mercenaries at Daphne, mostly Carians and Ionic Greeks. It was an outpost. It was a military outpost. And you want a bunch of mercenaries there for when the, the Babylonians arrive. You know, your mercenaries can, they can, most of them can die. And, and, and all they're hopefully trying to do is slow down the invading Babylonians while you get the rest of your Egyptian armies together. Uh, and so it was very much, it was a Greek, it was a Hellenistic culture there that the Jews found when they, uh, when they arrived. <coughs> After Jerusalem was destroyed, the Jewish fugitives, including Jeremiah, came here to Toponese. Uh, when Naucratis was given the monopoly of Greek traffic by Amasis, Amasis was the king after Psammeticus, uh, Greeks were removed from Daphne. So without all those mercenaries, what do you got left? <laughs> got some straggling Jews hanging out here, and, and they're going to be massacred when Nebuchadnezzar arrives. Um, in, and their prosperity never returned. In Herodotus' time, the deserted remains of the docks and the buildings were visible. site was discovered by Sir William Matthew Flinders Petrie in 1886. It was then known by natives as Qasr bint al-Yahudi, the castle of the Jew's daughter. There's a bizarre name. Why would an Egyptian name this castle something like that? See, well, they would have no reason, but the Jews would if this had become a refuge for the king's daughters, for the, the remnant that, that uh, Yohanan had brought down here. There was a massive fort and enclosure. The chief discovery was a large number of fragments of pottery, which are of great importance for the chronology of the vase painting. Since they belong to the time between Psaka, Psamaticus, and Amasis. All right. Anyway. That's the article there. If you want to read more, William F. Petrie, uh, The Memoir of the Egyptian Exploration Fund, 1888. And if you ever read through those memoirs, look for volume five, okay? Volume five is the particular edition 
of the memoir of the Egyptian Exploration Fund. By the way, why was all this being done in the 1800s? Because <laughs> Egyptians weren't running Egypt in the 1800s, okay? The British were running Egypt in the 1800s. All right, before that, it was the French. Napoleon conquered Egypt, all right? Yeah, I mean, you know, I like to make French jokes, but there's, uh, you know, the Egyptians have not been in charge of the Egyptians for a long, long time. And uh, we're seeing the beginning of that uh, here this morning. All right, back to Flinders, this guy. I'm, I'm going to run out of time. I, uh, I encourage you to read this. Go to Wikipedia, pull up Flinders Petrie, uh, find some of his biographies, okay? Fascinating guy. You're going you're gonna to hate him by the end of the article. You're going to love him in the first few paragraphs. And then by the end, you'll find out, oh, wait a minute, okay? Because of, of again, his day and age, as far as the science of his generation, the science of his day, uh, as, uh, you know, a lot of the, the uh, evolutionary stuff was coming in, a lot of the Darwinian thought was coming in, a lot of the eugenic beliefs were coming in. Um, by the time he was done with all of his archaeology work, he was convinced what a, what a primitive people the Africans were, what a primitive people the, the Semites were, what a glorious, exalted people the, uh, the, the English were, okay? And uh, clearly, you know, a culture does better when you let the civilized nations rule over the, the barbarians, okay? And so there's, there's, you're going to read stuff that, that may make you uncomfortable if, uh, if you're a social justice warrior, you're all caught up in, in modern sensitivities to things. But if you can get past that and understand who he was in his day, it's extraordinary the things that he did. So like I say, we're going to i got seven minutes before the communion service. But um, this guy, born in 1853, died in 1942. Um, Sir William Matthew Flinders Petrie. Um, uh, pioneer of systematic methodology and archaeology and the preservation of artifacts. In fact, the whole concept of digging carefully layer by layer by layer and documenting with, with photographs uh, the placement of artifacts as they were found in each layer working your way down, he invented that. All right? he, was, he was aghast at some of the other digs that were happening before him where they were just going in there wholesale and pulling stuff out. He held the first uh, chair of Egyptology in the United Kingdom, excavated many of the most important archaeological sites in, in Egypt in conjunction with his wife, Hilda. She's got a neat story, too, um, and her own Wikipedia page, so you can read that if you like. Um, some consider his most famous discovery to be that of the, the uh, Mernaptah steel, and he agreed. Um, thinking back over his life. He developed the system of dating layers based on pottery and ceramic findings. Uh, born in Kent, England, the son of uh, William and Anne. Uh, she had an interesting story too. Daughter of Captain Matthew Flinders. He was a, quite an adventurer and a discoverer, mapped to the coast of Australia. Spoke six languages, that's his mother. Spoke six languages. Let's see. And was an Egyptologist. William Petrie was an electrical engineer who developed carbon arc lighting and later developed the chemical processes for Johnson, Matthew, and Company. All right. Raised in a Christian household, his father being Plymouth Brethren. Now, if you know anything about England in this time frame, okay, this group of Bible teachers is, is the closest thing to Austin Bible Church you're going to find. 
All right, the Plymouth Brethren. You're going to find dispensational premillennialism. You're going to find a literal hermeneutic. You're going to find the filling of the Holy Spirit and the confession of sin. You're going to find the, the, the true spirituality that we operate in, in, uh, in things. And this is how he grew up. No formal education. His father taught his son how to survey accurately, laying the foundation for his archaeological career. At the age of eight, he was, accu- he was uh, tutored in French, Latin, and Greek until he had uh, collapsed and was taught at home. He also ventured his first archaeological opinion, age eight, when f- friends visiting the Petrie family were dis- describing the unearthing of the Braiding Roman villa on the Isle of Wight. The boy was horrified to hear the rough shoveling out of the contents and protested that the earth should be pared away inch by inch to see all that was in it and how it lay. All that he had done since, he wrote when he was in his late 70s, was there uh, to begin with. So true that we can only develop what is born in the mind. I was already in archaeology by nature. Anyway, it's kind of a, a neat background on him. In 1896, he married Hilda, so that was kind of later. That was after many of his Egyptian digs. He was a bachelor for most of his Egyptian digs, but he did uh, marry Hilda in 1896, two children and that. Um, When he died, oh, here we go. Um, Their son, John Flinders Petrie, the mathematician who gave his name to the Petrie Polygon. In 1933, and retiring from his professorship, he moved permanently to Jerusalem, where he lived with Lady Petrie in the British School of Archaeology, then temporarily headquartered at the American School of Oriental Research, Still there to this day, been renamed the Albright Institute of Archaeological Research. When he died in 1942, Petrie donated his head (laughs) and and thus his brain to the Royal College of Surgeons in London while his body was interred in the Protestant Cemetery on Mount Zion. World War II was then at its height and the head was delayed in transit. After being stored in a jar in the college basement, its label fell off and no one knew... (laughs) who the head belonged to. Isn't this great? It was identified, however, and is now stored, but not displayed, at the Royal College of Surgeons in, uh, in London. Anyway, there's more here. All of his digs, all of his writing, all of his research, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of debt that, that subsequent generations owe. He dug at Tanis, he dug at at uh, Nebesheh, and uh, in 1886, he excavated Tel Nebesheh. It was the same dig that he dug here at our, at our study today at Toppenese, okay, at Toppenese, or call it by its Greek name. Anyway, the work that he did in Egypt, the work that he did in Israel, the finding of the Merneptah steel, which is fascinating because it actually mentions Israel in the Egyptian records. All of the mockers were saying, we can't find any reference to Israel in Egypt until Petrie found it here on the Merneptah steel. He was knighted. He's a fellow of the Royal Society and uh, so forth. And then, yeah, some of the eugenic stuff and that's not fun to read. Um, Anyway, selected works, lots of, lots of that. If you want to read, I don't have time, but there's the, there's the PDF version of the, the very report that addresses how they discovered the, uh, the site of what we're studying today, this, the site of these bricks. And uh, they actually dug through the bricks looking to find those stones, see, because of the, the conviction they had that this, this is what Jeremiah had, uh, had prophesied. All right, well, so much for that.
the truth of the Word of God is so exhaustive and it's so such a blessing what we have to study this detail and that detail, the love of the truth that we're not just reading nursery rhymes, we're not just reading stories. This is not, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. This is, it is a long time ago, but it's right here on this earth, in this world. And these places are still there. The places are still there, all right? And many of them, if you dig down deep enough, you can find the remnants of, of what remains in different aspects. It's, uh, to me, biblical Christianity is the most rational worldview out there. And all of these God-haters and atheists and Bible skeptics and all these other folks, they are the irrational ones because we apply reason to the evidence. And all of this comes together in such a glorious way that, um, it, to me, the biggest thrill in the world is, is to obey the Scripture when it says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That uh, the, the impact of this is, is not simply to believe on the basis of no evidence, to just have a faith wish for something to be true, or to be persuaded by God's conviction of the evidence whereby we're trusting in God Himself who cannot lie. And that's fundamentally what it comes down to. And so in all these things, um, um, beyond the Jeremiah study, our brand new Philippian study we started last hour, the brand new Philippian study we're going to be taking into the coming weeks and months and years, um, it's all about what God reveals in His truth that, uh, that we're convicted of, that we're pleased to live out in the reality, our rational work of service. All right. Well, next week, uh, when we come back to chapter 44, there's a longer word that's given. And in chapter 44, the word that came to Jeremiah for all the Jews living in the land of Egypt. And beyond just simply this immediate group, like I say, there have been scattered refugees for a long, long time. And now we've got multiple generations throughout the land of Egypt. And they're going to get addressed in the process of a fairly long message, uh, 30 verses there in chapter 44. So next week we'll come back and we'll address that. And a lot of content there's a lot of content there, particularly if you want to read it ahead of time, I encourage you, pay attention to the references there to the Queen of Heaven, and you'll realize we got some work to do because uh, the Queen of Heaven uh, operates on this planet today and will operate in the tribulation and will operate until it's done away with when, uh, I don't know, I'll give you a little hint, Jesus doesn't do away with it at second advent. Antichrist does away with it before the second advent. And so uh, some of these Queen of Heaven studies become important for us as well. Father, I thank you for your truth. I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for Petrie and for um, Albright and for Gordon and, and how many more, Father, these archaeologists and scholars and linguists, men that, that dedicated their lives, men and women that, that dedicated their lives to studying hieroglyphics and languages and things. And, and here we are this morning, Father. We get to benefit from, from their labors. Father, uh, thank you for the, the, the content of this book that we might make application in our day and age. Father, thank you for um, just all the ways that your truth comes alive. Thank you for Jeremiah and his faithfulness. He made no excuses, Father, and he continued to stay faithful. And uh, Father, this is exactly what we might expect of a faithful prophet, one that was a type of Christ. And I thank you, Father, on this day that we can also come together at the communion table and communicate the, uh, the faithfulness of, of your Son, 
our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He himself spent some time in Egypt. Father, I thank you for his faithfulness. I thank you that though he was rejected and hated, he kept speaking the truth. He kept serving you. And ultimately, Father, he went to the cross that we might have eternal life. So I pray this morning as we, as we come together, as we partake of the communion table, that you will continue to bless our time and bless our studies and bless our worship and bless our love. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.